Good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 27. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Acts 27. Uh, as uh, probably many of you know, we've been working through the book of Acts, reading through it week after week, and we are at the second to last chapter in the book of Acts. <clears throat> Before we read that together, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your mercy to us in your Son, Jesus. We thank you for your many, many promises. Uh, we thank you for your word, which reveals all of this to us. We pray, Father, that as we read, you would uh, speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts and open our minds and give us ears to hear, uh, give us a will to believe uh, what you have said in your word. We pray that you would encourage us with the gospel, uh, pour out your spirit uh, to that end, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulties to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned." 
Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck the, and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The book of Revelation gives us a picture of a new world. And even if you think it's fantasy and fairy tales, which I don't, but even if you did, it's a fascinating book. It says something about the human hope. Revelation 21 paints a picture of a world without death or mourning or crying or pain. And we long for such a world, right? We long uh, for such a life. What would your life be like without pain, without trials, without suffering, without the constant threat of disease and death? There's something else absent, though, in Revelation's new world, and that's the sea. 
It's true. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It's an odd little statement, I guess. Uh, it owes more, though, to the figurative nature of the language of Revelation than it does to the topography of the new creation. But we're not in the book of Revelation, though that will come in later on. We are in uh, the second to last chapter of the book of Acts. And Paul is finally making his way toward Rome. And after a, a two-year hiatus in a Caesarean, Caesarean jail cell, he has once again, he's on his journey, and once again he faces life-threatening dangers. A storm on the sea, threatening to swallow him and all of his companions into its depths. And we're going to talk about trials this morning, even suffering. And we're going to talk about that in, in four steps. You can see the outline in your bulletin on the back if you want to follow along. We're going to talk about seeing the waves, wondering why, looking for light, and then finally and, and briefly lighting the way. So first, seeing the waves. This may be kind of an odd question, but do you realize how difficult your life is? Are your eyes open to its challenges? Are you aware of the dangers all around you? Again, it might seem like a funny question. Of course you're aware of your own trials and troubles. How could you not be? But I'm not so sure that our eyes are always open to the real threat of our situations. I'm not so sure we realize how dire it really is. And the evidence for that in the Bible is, of course, the person of Jonah. You remember Jonah, right? Uh, he thought that he could run from God in a boat. He thought he could escape God's purpose for him by setting sail for Tarshish. And so Jonah gets up to flee from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Joppa, down into a boat, and lays down and falls fast asleep. What is happening while Jonah sleeps? There's a storm raging outside. God hurls this great wind upon the sea and the ship threatens to break up and the seasoned sailors are afraid. They hurl their cargo into the sea because all hope of getting them and the cargo safely to land is lost. And Jonah is asleep in the boat. It's the sleep of, of those who want to avoid life. It's the sleep of those whose eyes are closed to the world's pain. Those who have decided that they don't want to see it. They don't want to face the realities of life's trials. See, Jonah doesn't know or doesn't care or doesn't want to know how bad his situation really is. And because Jonah doesn't want to know, he is fast asleep in the boat. We all have ways of avoiding the truth of our own trouble. Uh, maybe our philosophy is just ignore it and hope it goes away. Or maybe our philosophy is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is, right, live it up, have fun while it lasts. Maybe we lie and we tell ourselves it's really not so bad after all. I mean, look on the bright side. Every cloud has a silver lining, and on and on we go. Each of those has a, a tiny truth in it, I guess, but they're mostly, mostly half-truths, and half-truths are really just plausible lies. <laughs> That brings us to why there's no sea in the new creation. 
I know, it's so silly. Why is there no sea in the new creation? Is it because God decided suddenly that large bodies of water were a bad idea after all? The, the, the sea to the Jewish mind was largely a place of chaos and death. I mean, in the beginning, God brought life out of chaos by bringing order to the waters. In judgment, God reversed that order in the days of Noah, brought chaos once again. Or consider uh, Israel's escape through the Red Sea, right? The, the, the Psalms and Isaiah compare the Red Sea to a monster threatening Israel, a monster that God subdued in the sea and saved his people. Or consider the book of Daniel and Revelation, and they have these terrifying visions of monsters coming out of the sea. And when finally in Revelation 20, the dead are raised, who gives them up? We're told not only death and Hades, but the sea gives up the dead that are in it. See, the sea is a place of chaos that threatens to break down the order of the world and bring death. The sea, at least uh, in the imagery of the Bible, is something that must be overcome. Well, what happens in Acts 27? Paul is being taken by sea to Rome. He's aboard one ship and then another. He's escorted by a centurion. The, the, the sailors, uh, probably for financial reasons, take a, a risky gamble and try to sail just a little bit further in the hopes of reaching a safer port that would be just a little bit closer to Rome. Now, the port that they were in was literally called Fair Havens, but that didn't seem to sway them. Uh, they thought it was a good idea to leave that. And uh, nor did Paul's speech in favor of hunkering down sway them either. But no sooner do they leave this port uh, than a great storm comes up. The sailors fight this storm for days. They secure the ship by getting ropes underneath it to, to hold the boat together. They lower an anchor to slow them from being crashed into, into the North African coast. Things get so desperate they begin to jettison uh, first the cargo and then the ship's tackle, that is pretty much anything that could be picked up and tossed overboard to lighten the load so that the boat didn't sink. They, they were desperate. And when they had seen no sun nor stars for many days, verse 20 says, all hope of our being saved at last was abandoned. And notice Luke even seems to include himself among the hopeless. Did you notice Luke is here at this time? Uh, the, the passage switches to we's, right? And ours. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The sea threatens to devour them. The, the monster is unleashed, as it were. And yet, let me give you a slightly different uh, angle from which to see this, right? Satan in the Bible is called uh, both the, the great serpent, the dragon, and the lion seeking to devour the people of God. He desires to destroy the church and halt the advance of the gospel. And, and remember, that's what's going on here, right? The, the gospel, Paul is taking the gospel to Rome. Jesus is fulfilling the, 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 the pattern that he laid out in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is sending Paul to the ends of the earth, to Rome, from Jerusalem. And yet Satan threatens to undo him, as he did with Job. 
He uses the forces of creation to assault God's people. The sailors see the waves, and like the sailors on Jonah's ship in the same sea, they were gripped with fear and ultimately despair. And, and here's my first question for you, which is pretty simple, and that is, do you see the waves? Uh, remember when Peter walked out on the water uh, to Jesus, everything was going fine until he saw the wind and the waves. And then he got afraid. Do you see the waves? Uh, are, are you being honest with yourself about how bad it might be? You know, only after you see the waves can you begin to deal with them. So that's what we need to do, right? We need to, we need to open our eyes and see how bad things really are. To see the trials, the temptations, the suffering for what it really is. And only then can we begin to respond in a God-honoring way, which begins with wondering why which is our next point. You know, when the reality of our, our pain and trouble begins to soak in, we begin to ask why. Right? Why? Why is this happening? Typically, we, we, uh, what we do is look for someone to blame. This is what happened in Jonah's day. Again, the sailors actually drew straws to see whose fault the storm was. That's our tendency when trouble comes, isn't it? Right? Who, whose fault is this? Who can I blame? Who's responsible for this mess? Now, probably 99% of the time, that's the wrong question. <laughs> not, not because it's wrong to hold people accountable for their actions. And so, right, I mean, if, if, if your trouble is because someone is abusing you, right, they, they should be held accountable. And so don't mishear what I'm saying to, to let abusive people off the hook. But most of the time, our question about whose fault is this is just the wrong question. Asking who's to blame here normally won't lead us to a, to a good place, uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, right, whatever. Uh, it, it's not going to solve the problem. What's worse is oftentimes as Christians, sometimes we get it in our head that if there is something wrong, it must be my fault. Right? God is punishing me. Uh, he, he's getting me back for something that I did. Uh, our, our picture of God is this one-dimensional God of vengeance. We, we, we don't understand grace, or e even if we believe it or confess it, uh, we live our lives weighed down with guilt, just waiting for God to smite us. We assume that any trouble that comes our way is our just desserts. But I, I want you to think again about Jonah versus Paul. There are any number of ways that we might compare the two men. Uh, they, they both faced storms on the sea. Uh, the storms were so bad, the sailors were afraid. They throw the cargo overboard and they pray. But think about Jonah. The book of Jonah, God sends the storm on Jonah because Jonah is running away. And God is chasing him down. And, and so you, you, you could say in a simple way, well, that, that storm is Jonah's fault. But then you have Paul, who's almost the anti-Jonah. He's obeying God, right? He's doing the right thing, and yet troubles still come. See, we have this delusion that if I obey God, everything in my life, everything in my life will go well. And if things aren't going well, well, it must be my fault. But what we actually see in the Bible is that, is that from our perspective, there's almost no rhyme or reason that we can humanly discern as to why one person suffers and another does not. 
At the same time, God's people are actually guaranteed suffering in this life. Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble. Paul says in 2 Timothy, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so there's no amount of, of good enough that will get you out of troubles in this life. Now, don't get me wrong, right? I mean, if you rob a bank and go to jail, well, you brought that upon yourself. <laughs> At the moment, I'm not talking about sort of direct worldly consequences for actions. That's, a, that's another conversation. But I'm talking about generalized suffering that we then attribute to God punishing us for something that we've done. We can't do that. Right? that that's an unnecessary and an illegitimate inference. We can't. We can't read God's providence like reading the stars or something like that. It doesn't work like that. There, there's another way to compare Jonah and Paul, though. It, it, it brings a different answer to this why question. So we look at Paul in particular. Jonah is commanded, go to the greatest city in the known world, Nineveh, and preach. But he runs the other way, and he brings suffering to those around him. Paul is called to go to the greatest city in the known world, Rome, and preach. And he goes, and God blesses those around him. Blesses those around him? Really? It doesn't look like blessing in this story, but it is, right? Look at verses 21 to 25, right? They had been without food for a long time. Paul stands up among them, says, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred the injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. See, here's this group of sailors. They've, they've gotten caught in a storm because of a bad judgment call. Maybe not, maybe not sin, but just folly. And were Paul not there, what would have happened? It's hard to say, I guess, right? But, but from the information that we have, they would have perished. The angel says to Paul, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Paul's very presence is a blessing to them in the midst of the storm. And, and we can generalize this, think about how this plays out in the life of God's people, the life of the church. Uh, even bigger than that, think about God's covenant with Noah. God's covenant with Noah, his promises to Noah after the, the flood. God promises to preserve the earth, the whole earth, right? And that's a blessing to all people. But God will not preserve the present earth forever. That's not the promise, right? God will only preserve it until his redemptive purposes are complete. And so the, the, the presence of God's people and God's ongoing redemptive purposes are the very reason that God preserves this earth at all. Theologians talk about this as, as common grace, God's sort of care for all kinds of people, subserving saving grace, right? Common grace subserves, it, 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 it uh, plays a part for or is there on behalf of saving grace. See, God's ultimate goal is the salvation of his people. But in the meantime, God restrains his wrath and anger against a fallen world to preserve the stage on which his redemptive purposes work out. And this is a blessing, right, to all people, Christian and non-Christian alike. And so God preserves the sailors for Paul's sake. 
The opposite, though, is also true. Uh, we, we often put the question, why does God allow suffering? Uh, we could put the question differently. Right? Why has God left me here in a world full of suffering? See, when God, when God saves his people, he could, have, he could have immediately taken you out of the world. And he, he could have saved you from sin and suffering at the same instant. The moment you trusted in Jesus, boom, you're out of here. But he didn't do that. Why not? Why has God left the church in a broken world? Well, for the sake of the broken world. We are here to bear witness to his work in Christ. That's why God is sending Paul to Rome, to bear witness to what God has done in Jesus. And so God preserves the world for the sake of the church, and God leaves the church in the world for the sake of the world. What this means is one answer to, to why am I suffering or why has God left me here in this broken world as his people is for the good of those around me. God has left you here in a broken world to bless the world. Above all, by, by sharing the gospel and pointing people to Jesus. But at the very least, by serving those and showing them the love that God has shown to you. And part of us taking the gospel to the nations, as, as Jesus commands, is sharing in their situation, right? It's being in the world. And so sharing in their suffering as well. This is part of what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ, which really brings us to a, a third comparison between Jonah and Paul, right? A third reason for our suffering. On the one hand, we said we can't say God is punishing you. That's too simplistic, right? That's an, it's not a fair application of Scripture. Second, we, we can say that our suffering is somehow a necessary part of God bringing blessing, the blessing of the gospel to the nations, which means third, we, we suffer, as Paul says elsewhere, to share in the sufferings of Jesus, to be conformed to his image. It, it, that's not to say that our suffering is the same as Jesus' suffering, right? He came to suffer for us, to save us. His suffering was a, a substitutionary suffering. That is, he suffered in our place. He paid the penalty for our sins, right? The Bible calls it an atonement. Ours is not a suffering of atonement. But God has left us in a world of trouble that we might bring the gospel to that world. And so while not atoning as, as Christ's was, our suffering is in a sense for the good of those around us. And as we suffer for others, we are thereby conformed to the image of Jesus who suffered for us. And so it's in the midst of suffering that we bring blessing to those around us and are conformed to Christ's image. Right? How else could you be conformed to the image of one who suffered and died than through suffering, becoming like him in his death, as Paul says? This is clearly what's going on here in Acts, actually. Why do I say that? Well, think about all that has happened to Paul. Paul, like Jesus, had a burden to go to Jerusalem. Paul, like Jesus, arouses the jealousy of the religious leaders. Paul, like Jesus, is arrested and falsely accused. Paul, like Jesus, is handed over to the Romans. Paul, like Jesus, is brought before a, a King Herod, different King Herod, but a King Herod. Paul, like Jesus, is declared to be innocent. Paul, like Jesus, is nevertheless not released. Paul, like Jesus, faces suffering and death. Jesus, of course, dies. Paul does not. The difference being Jesus is the sin bearer and Paul is not. But the parallels are unmistakable, right? Paul, through his trials, is being conformed to the image of Jesus. He's following in the footsteps of his master. He is taking up his cross and following Jesus. And so the scripture clearly 
teaches us that if we want to be conformed to the image of Jesus, we must share in his suffering. We must become like him in his death, as Paul says. That doesn't mean self-infliction or self-harm or, or some weird thing like that. It means that we seek to serve, to give of ourselves for the good of other people. And we are willing to die to ourselves for the sake of others. And we know that suffering will come. And then in God's plan, it has a purpose. It doesn't mean we invite it or seek it out, right? Paul often escaped persecution when possible. But it means when suffering and trouble comes, we know that this does not mean that God has fallen asleep. It doesn't mean that God looked the other way for a moment. Rather, he is at work in and through us to his glory in this moment, in this trial. See, the storms of life are, are real and the waves are large, but God is at work in the midst of that, in and through us, for his glory and our good. And yet, that doesn't mean that we should like the darkness. Rather, we must keep our eyes open and look for the light. When you are suffering, is knowing that your suffering has a purpose enough? I don't mean does it alleviate the suffering, right? Because knowing that your suffering has a purpose does not alleviate the suffering. There's no, there's no Jedi mind trick, right, to make your problems go away. Sometimes we try to rationalize our suffering in the hopes that, that it won't hurt anymore. Right? If, I just, if I just convince myself that it, it's really for a good purpose and then all the pain's going to go away. No, that won't work. The point of knowing the purpose of suffering is not to alleviate it, but to enable us to endure it. I think the, the, the intellectual understanding of, of one or, or, or more purposes of suffering, that's actually not enough. Paul's companions had lost all hope in verse 20. They, they sat in the darkness and they were afraid. And the angel says to Paul, do not be afraid. Paul says to his companions, take heart. And they wandered at sea in the storm for 14 days. And when the 14th night came, the sailors suspected that they might be nearing land how? I'm not sure. Maybe they could hear the waves crashing on the rocky shore. And they measure the depth of the water, and that confirms it, right? Land is approaching, which is both good news and bad news. It's good because I'm sure they really wanted to get off that ship, but it's bad because they didn't want to crash onto the rocks near the shore and be pummeled to death by the waves on the rocks and that in the sight of land. That would be bad. And so they let down anchors to hold their position and not be dashed upon the rocks, and they pray for day to come. See, in the darkness, they, they pray for light because in this case, the light will actually literally be their salvation. It will save them. When day comes, they will see the rocks clearly enough to navigate around them and make their way to shore. And just before dawn, Paul urges them to eat something so they have strength for what is ahead. And Paul's confidence in the midst of this trial comes from God's promises. There's the general promise, right, that Paul would indeed preach in Rome. Jesus said this to Paul back in Acts 23. The angel says this to Paul and here in Acts 27. So Paul has this confidence, as he says in verse 25, God's going to fulfill his promises. Paul is going to make it to Rome. And yet there's this even more specific promise to Paul. God has granted you all those who sail with you. And so in verse 34, Paul can say, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And it's these promises that kept Paul going, that enabled him to encourage those around him. These promises that said, you're, you're going to make it through this, Paul. And of course, the very presence of the angel on the boat standing before Paul probably was quite an encouragement as well. 
But if you think about it, right, we don't have such specific promises. And that might seem a bit discouraging. I had a friend one time who was about to lose his job, and I was trying to encourage him, right, that God had a plan in this, God would care for him. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know all that, but how do I know that God's plan isn't that I end up in a cardboard box? And I said, you don't, which maybe wasn't what he wanted to hear at the time. But I said, look, if that's God's plan, it's the plan of your loving, omniscient father. He knows what's best for you. He wants what's best for you. You will get what is best for you. So in the absence of specific promises, then what, what do we have? Well, we have the promises of Scripture. And there are a couple in particular that stand out, though many of them can apply to different circumstances. First, we, we have the promise that Jesus will be with us in our trials. And second, we have the promise that Jesus will bring us through them. So Jesus promises to be with us in our trials, right? We don't have the, the promise of an angelic visitation, but we do have the promise of the presence of Jesus, right? An unseen presence, to be sure, but not unreal. Jesus says in Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Jesus pours out his spirit on his people so that he dwells with us. And we know that this is true by faith. That is because God's word says it is true. We trust our Father. This promise should bring us comfort, right? Whatever you're going through, Jesus is right there with you. He's, he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. And that means in the midst of trouble, I can remind myself that Jesus, the one who conquered death, is with me right now. The one who holds the universe together is beside me and with me and in me, and he's for me. I don't need to be afraid. But second, Jesus promises to bring us through our trials, he doesn't promise that we can avoid them, but he does promise to bring us through them. He promises to save us through them. That's the word that Luke uses again and again in this passage. The word save or salvation uses it in verse 20 when he says, all hope of being saved was abandoned. Verse 31, he says, unless these men stay in the ship, you will not be saved. Verse 43, the centurion wished to save Paul. Verse 44, so it was that all were brought safely to land. See, God kept his promise to save everyone on the ship. See, Peter tells us in 2 Peter, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And that's what we see here, right? God rescuing his children from trials. But what does that mean, right, that God will save us through trials? Paul says in verse 34 to the sailors and others, he says, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Uh, Jesus said something similar at one point when talking about troubles. He said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." Right, Jesus is saying that in, in the face, uh, you will face trouble and persecution, but not a hair of your head will perish. It's actually a bit odd that Jesus would say that, right? Notice he says, some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. 
My boys had a lot of fun last night trying to figure out how that works. <laughs> what does that mean? Sometimes Jesus doesn't make any sense. That is to, to our worldly ears. What is he saying? He's saying even if we die, our lives are secure. That's the promise of Jesus. How so? Because the promise of Jesus is resurrection. Right? Jesus faced death for sin. He died and was raised. And he now promises that all who believe in him, though they die, yet will they live. Jesus promises whatever trial, whatever trouble you are in, if you belong to him, if you, if you are one of his, he will bring you through this trial. Even if it ends in death, he will bring you through because he has conquered death. There is no trial so big that he cannot conquer it. And so Jesus hasn't promised, it's true, that you won't end up in a cardboard box. Though, as I told my friend, his, his church would never have let that happen to him. But even if it did, here is Jesus' promise. I will be with you in the midst of it, and I will bring you through. No matter how bad it gets, I will bring you through. We've mentioned Jonah quite a bit. And uh, we mentioned that Jonah was sleeping in the boat at one point, trying to avoid the obvious. There's another story in the Bible of another person sleeping in another boat, but this time it's not Jonah, but Jesus. And he's not trying to avoid his problems, rather he is resting in his father's love in the midst of them. If we are like Jonah, right, we need to wake up to the realities of life, not ignore them, not medicate them away, but face them and acknowledge them. But then... We need to know that God is at work in and through you in the midst of your trials, whatever they are, and Jesus promises to be with you and bring you through them to the, the dry land of the resurrection and the new creation. What that means is you can lay down again and sleep. Not the sleep of avoidance, but the rest of faith. Which brings us to our last point and most briefly, lighting the way. And here is really all I want to say about this is, is Jesus' promises are to us a light in a dark place. Right? They, they remind us that in the midst of our troubles, there is hope. Hope in the midst of despair, a reason for joy in the midst of sorrow. If Jesus' promises are that to you, then find someone in your life for whom you too can light the way. Embody for them the presence of Jesus. Share with them the promises of Jesus so that in this way all of God's people will in the end be brought safely to land. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your many promises that we have in your son Jesus. We thank you for uh, the, the promise most of all of the resurrection uh, that you will be with us now in the midst of the, the valley of the shadow of death but you will also bring us through that valley into the new creation. That is our hope. That is the, the day for which we long. Keep our eyes there, Father. Help us to rest in those sure and certain promises, even in the midst of our troubles, even when our whole world is crashing down around us. Help us to know that your promises are firm and sure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.